During the Los Angeles riots of 1992, the civil unrest there lasted for days. Stores were burned and destroyed. People were pulled out of their vehicles and assaulted. One infamous case involved Reginald Denny, who was dragged out of his truck and beaten almost to death. Six thugs kicked him repeatedly, struck him with a claw hammer and a brick, all of which fractured his skull in 91 places and dislocated his eye. And as he lay bleeding in the street, completely unconscious, some of his attackers did a victory dance around him while flashing gang signs to the cameras that were videotaping the beating. So where were the police? Well, they were unable to contain the rioters throughout the city, so the California National Guard was eventually marshaled. But many guardsmen, after being mobilized to the dangerous areas, sat by and watched the violence because their rifles were low on ammunition. The riots lasted for several days, and before all the dust settled, 63 people were killed, more than 2,000 people were injured, and roughly $1 billion in property was damaged. Americans were horrified as they watched the -the round-the-clock news coverage on their TVs. But as bad as things were, there was one group of people who were unaffected in Los Angeles. They were the Korean business owners who protected their stores with semi-automatic firearms. In fact, they protected themselves with the types of guns that are frequently misnamed as assault weapons. In areas where armed citizens banded together for self-protection, their businesses were spared while others, which were left unprotected, burned to the ground. So the Koreans were kept safe, but that wasn't the case in the rest of the city. In fact, press reports described how lifelong gun control supporters were running to gun stores to buy an item they never thought they would need, a gun. And tragically, they were surprised and outraged to learn there was then a 15-day waiting period on firearms. But while these people suffered, those who had prepared themselves in advance, like the Korean businessmen, they were the ones who survived without a scratch. Sadly, there are government officials around the country today who turn a blind eye to the fact that evil doesn't give a second thought about the law. So imagine your home or business was going to be looted or burned to the ground tomorrow and law enforcement just vanished. The question is, what are you going to do about it? This is Firing Back, a podcast from Gun Owners of America. that looks at issues involving gun rights and examines how these issues not only affect you, but how they can empower you to take self-defense into your own hands. I also want to welcome my co-host, Remzo Martinez. Eric, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this program because this isn't simply, you know, covering what defending the Second Amendment really means, but it's about promoting a pro-you message. It's about ultimately empowering you to protect your life, your liberty, and your property, because if you don't have that, you have nothing else. So, Eric, just a few moments ago, you were talking about the L.A. riots. Now, I was, you know, I, I wasn't even a glimmer in my father's eye at that time, but, you know, just looking back at the footage, it terrifies me. And what was horrible was that for several days, the people who had to live through it, I mean, they just went through so much. 
So I'm just curious, are you cherry picking the examples or are there other instances in our recent history? Because it's really easy to look at the bad, but is this something that we continually have to worry about? Oh, absolutely. The L.A. riots wasn't the last time that law and order broke down in this country and people felt vulnerable and unprotected. In 2005, New Orleans experienced major problems after Hurricane Katrina blasted the city. Roughly 80 to 90 percent of the city was evacuated prior to the storm. And once the hurricane hit, the city was hammered by massive flooding. It would be an understatement to say that life was really hard for those who stayed behind as they had to protect themselves from looters and roving gangs. And to make matters worse, hundreds of New Orleans police officers fled the city. And some of them reportedly even participated in the looting of the city. Now, Clearly, there were many officers who acted honorably, but thousands of residents were trapped inside the city and forced to fend for themselves. No wonder, then, that gun stores, which weren't underwater from the flooding, were selling firearms at a record pace to people looking to defend themselves. Even soldiers were reportedly going into gun stores to purchase firearms. But once again, it was the armed citizens who were able to successfully protect themselves and stop looters from destroying their homes. Now, fast forward to 2014. Mayhem struck again in Ferguson, Missouri. Businesses were burned to the ground, vehicles were destroyed, and a lot of lives were lost. And one of the frequent complaints by residents there was the lack of law enforcement. One pastor complained that there were no police present. A former police chief even lamented the police were reluctant to act. So how did civilians respond? Well, similar to previous riots, people ran to gun stores so they could protect themselves. At one point, gun sales surged by 700%. First-time gun buyers were flooding to gun stores. Handguns and AR-15s were flying off the shelves. As in Los Angeles, the businessmen in Ferguson who had an armed presence in front of their stores or on their rooftops, as the case might be, those were the stores that remained standing without any damage whatsoever. They were the ones who were able to keep vicious street gangs from destroying their livelihood. But here's the unfortunate thing. Courts have consistently ruled that the police have no obligation to protect you as an individual, only to protect society at large. So here's the question. What do you do when civil order breaks down? Well, I I mean, the answer for many politicians on Capitol Hill is gun control. They want to ban guns. They want gun-free zones, background checks on gun buyers, and so much more. But, Eric, I've heard you say before that there are a lot of these gun control advocates, and a lot of them are hypocrites. Why do you say that? Well, That's because some politicians think you and I would be safer not being able to protect ourselves with firearms, but they are hypocrites because they don't believe that for themselves. California Democrat Senator Dianne Feinstein authored a ban on roughly 200 types of firearms in 1994. She actually wanted to ban many more firearms, more than just a couple hundred. In fact, she said she wanted to ban all guns, literally all guns. In a 60 Minutes interview in 1995, she said, if I could have gotten 51 votes in the Senate of the United States for an outright ban, picking up every one of them, Mr. and Mrs. America, turn them all in, I would have done it. But I could not do that. The votes weren't here. So 
there's the irony. You know, she's protected on Capitol Hill by the security there. Uh, by the way, a very well-armed Capitol Hill security. And years before that, she'd even possessed a concealed carry permit. She admitted that herself, that she used to carry back in the 1970s for protection. But she's not the only hypocrite on Capitol Hill. Charlie Rangel, a longtime Democrat representative from New York, was asked about his opposition to citizens carrying guns when he was still there in Congress. The interviewer asked him, but you're protected by guns here at the Capitol. And to that question, Charlie Rangel chuckles and he says, well, well, that's different. We need to be protected. Really? That's different? I mean, what an elitist attitude many of these gun controllers have. They want you and I to be disarmed, but they want themselves to be protected by guns, of course. So I can pretty much correctly guess that that's not the only hypocrisy, though, because whenever a gun is used in a crime, gun control advocates typically don't blame the wrongdoer, right? No. Uh, In fact, they, they constantly blame the gun and not the shooter, something they would never do with other instruments that are used in crime. I mean, consider this. When a jihadi used a truck to kill 86 people in Nice, France in 2016, no one blamed the truck. Or when terrorists stabbed and killed 50 people at a Chinese coal mine in 2015, no one argued for knife control. Or what about Timothy McVeigh, who stuffed fertilizer into a rider truck and blew up a building in Oklahoma? He killed 168 people, but no one argued for banning rental trucks and fertilizer. Or what about the arsonist who murdered 87 people at a Bronx bar in 1990? I mean, no one called for outlawing gasoline and matches. That that would be stupid. It would be ridiculous. Nobody blames the instrument used in a crime unless it's a gun. So we have it settled. In in this case, anti-gun politicians blame the gun. That's that's the fact that we've clarified. And they pass laws creating hundreds, hundreds of gun-free zones, areas where no one is allowed to carry a gun. They refer to these laws as gun safety legislation. But, Eric, what's wrong with laws that are only designated to keep people safe? Well, the problem is they don't keep people safe. These laws only keep the criminals safe. They really should be called criminal safe zones because they prevent good guys from protecting themselves. I mean, good guys typically obey the laws, but bad guys don't, and they carry guns in places where they're not supposed to. Did you know that over 98% of the public mass shootings in this country, dating back to 1950, have occurred in these gun-free zones? It's really a remarkable thing. These killers specifically target the very areas where their potential victims are disarmed. And I'm talking about places like say, the bar in Orlando where 49 people were murdered in 2016, or the mass shootings at the San Bernardino offices in the Oregon Community College in 2015. And, of course, don't forget the Charleston and Chattanooga murders uh, from that same year. All of these places were gun-free zones where the victims were disarmed by rule or regulation. The list is almost endless. You, You can look at both Fort Hood shootings, the Aurora Theater Massacre in 2012, the Navy Yard Shooter, and many, many more. All these mass shootings occurred in gun-free zones where the potential victims could not legally carry. So it's no wonder that 98% of the public mass shootings have occurred in gun-free zones. You say that many of these killers target gun-free zones, 
despite the fact that almost all public mass shootings occur in these areas, is there any concrete evidence which shows specifically that these killers really did target these specific areas? There really is. Uh, take the thug who murdered several people at the Bible study uh, in Charleston uh, at that church. He had originally planned on committing his act of terror at a local community college, but he decided not to after seeing they had too much security. Same thing with the Aurora Theater shooter. He had originally looked at committing his crime at an airport, but seeing cops with guns there dissuaded him from pursuing that option. And, you know, the Aurora shooter is interesting because he carefully plotted his crime. He opted for shooting up a theater, but he didn't choose the closest one or the largest one. He chose the only theater within 20 miles of his home that had no guns allowed signs prominently displayed. So here's the situation. Colorado is a concealed carry state, but this killer chose the only theater that told concealed carriers, you're not allowed to carry here. Now, did those signs make moviegoers at that theater any safer? Absolutely not. See, killers may be evil, but they're not stupid. They don't want bullets flying back at them. And take also the, uh, the ISIS-inspired wannabe terrorist who was arrested by the FBI in February of 2016 for plotting to shoot up a huge megachurch in the Detroit area. Why was he targeting that particular church? Well, because according to him, people are not allowed to carry guns in church. See, in Michigan, guns are prohibited in churches unless they're specifically allowed by the church leadership. So, again, you see this over and over. Many of these killers do their homework, and they target gun-free zones because they want to be the only one with a gun. So have there been any attempted mass shootings in churches that were, I don't know, maybe stopped by a good guy with a gun? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 2007, a gunman entered the New Life Church in Colorado Springs intending to penetrate, uh, sorry, to perpetrate one of the greatest massacres in U.S. history. He was armed with a thousand rounds of ammunition. Unfortunately for him, he was only able to kill two people, and that's because he was met by a woman with a gun, Jean Assam is a concealed carry permit holder, and she used her firearm to critically wound the gunman who ended up taking his own life. Jean Assam was one of the worshipers at the church that day, actually, and she potentially saved hundreds of lives. Well, I mean, that was 2007, and we've had, a, a, it's an understatement to say, a few mass shootings since then. Have there been any shootings that were prevented by concealed carriers since the Colorado shooting you referenced? Oh, yeah, it, it happens quite a bit. A uh, concealed carrier shot and killed a gunman at a Texas sport bar in May of 2017. The killer had already shot one person and was trying to gun down more, but police credited the concealed carrier with preventing further loss of life. In 2016, an armed firefighter stopped a schoolyard shooter, and once again, authorities credited the hero firefighter with saving multiple lives. The year before that, the police credited two concealed carriers with stopping potential mass shootings and saving countless lives. One of those shootings occurred at a Philadelphia barbershop where the concealed carry permit holder shot and killed the bad guy. The other one was on a street corner in Chicago where an Uber driver became the hero. He shot a gunman six times in the chest after the wannabe killer opened fire on a crowd of people. Hey, there's lots of examples. I'll give you one more. Uh, 2014, a nutcase walked into a Darby, Pennsylvania hospital intent on killing as many people as possible. 
And this one was actually an interesting case because this hospital is a gun-free zone. They have a sign in front telling every person who enters they can't carry their guns in. Now, obviously, that didn't stop the bad guy from doing so. He completely ignored the gun-free zone sign, and he carried his illegal weapon onto the premises. But the gunman hadn't counted on the fact that his number one intended target, his doctor, had defied the hospital's no-guns-allowed policy and was carrying a gun on his own. That was Dr. Lee Silverman. He's a lawful permit holder. He carries concealed regularly. And so once he came under fire, he crouched behind a desk and shot back, hitting the gunman three times in the midsection. The bad guy was only able to murder one person because of that armed doctor. Police credited him with preventing a mass shooting and saving countless lives. Wow, that, that's incredible. But what are the actual stats when it comes to mass shootings? I mean, the media reports that mass shootings occur in America at a rate that, you know, it basically happens almost once a day. Is that true or are they making it up? Yeah, they, they report it that way and it's a total lie. In fact, even Mother Jones, which is hardly a bastion of conservatism, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're on the far, far left. They say the media has overstated the real number of mass shootings by 8,800%. The truth is mass shootings are extremely rare in this country. Statistically speaking, you're actually 159 times more likely to be run over by a car and killed than to die in a mass shooting. And yet, how many people are really scared about the walk from their car to their home or apartment? Uh, you know, how many people really fear crossing the street or walking on the sidewalk? We typically don't fear that because the media doesn't treat us to every fatality where a pedestrian is killed. I mean, if they did, then Americans would probably never walk anymore or, you know, maybe they would just call an Uber, right? But you can be sure that people would be calling for Congress to ban cars if the media reported on pedestrian deaths in the same way that they reported on gun deaths. So, you know, just playing devil's advocate here, aren't there still more mass shootings in the United States than, let's say, you know, Europe or Australia? No, but that's actually what anti-gun politicians want you to think. Uh, amazingly enough, in 2015, President Obama was speaking in Paris, less than a month after the Bataclan Theater massacre, where scores upon scores of people were murdered by terrorists. And President Obama, who, by the way, won the PolitiFact Lie of the Year Award in 2013 for telling Americans that if they liked their health care plan, they could keep it. Well, he told the French that mass shootings only occur in the United States. He said this less than a month after that massacre. I mean, can you believe the callousness of this man, not to mention how truth-challenged he is, because that was a total lie. So here are the facts. In one year alone, more people were murdered in mass shootings in France. That We're talking about 2015. More people were murdered in that one year in France than in all the U.S. mass shootings that occurred during Obama's presidency. It doesn't matter that France has far stricter gun control. Bad guys still get guns there. And, you know, it's not just in France. Other countries have higher mass shooting death rates than does the United States. You just look at Finland, Albania, Norway, Serbia. There's many others. But these countries have stricter gun control laws than does the U.S., but that hasn't prevented mass shootings from occurring there. If anything, you could make the argument that strict gun control laws ensure that terrorists and jihadis have a safer working environment. 
So, sir, we've got to get ready to wrap up this episode, but what would you say to someone who doesn't like guns or thinks we would be better off without them? I mean, what advice would you give to those that think we just need a safer society, and that means a safer society without firearms? Well, first I would say do your own research. It's ironic that the Obama administration commissioned the Centers for Disease Control to study the gun issue in 2013, and they did study the issue. But Obama didn't like the results, so he buried the report. I mean, it's on the web. Uh, You can find it and read it, but Obama never talked about it. In fact, the very liberal Slate magazine did a report on the CDC study, and the title of their article is revealing. It was Rethinking Gun Control, Surprising Findings from a Comprehensive Report on Gun Violence. They were actually shocked by what what the CDC found. And one of the surprising findings was that guns are used in self-defense anywhere from half a million to three million times a year. And that means, by the way, guns are used 16 to 100 times more often to save life than to take life. That's absolutely incredible. So Slate, Slate of all places reported on the overwhelming number of times that guns are being used in self-defense. I I mean, I wonder what their liberal readers thought of that. Yeah, I'm sure that every single one of them blew a gasket. But here's the exciting thing. There are many people who used to hate guns or who wanted to ban firearms. And for one reason or another, they've done a complete 80. For some, it's been the fact that they did their own research. Uh, Take James Wright, who used to be a gun control advocate, and he received a grant from President Carter's Justice Department to study the effectiveness of gun control laws. Well, Carter was anti-gun, and not surprisingly, they selected an anti-gun researcher like Wright to study the issue. But to Wright's surprise, he found that waiting periods, background checks, and all other gun control laws were not effective in reducing violent crime. And so in his own words, Wright says that at one time, It seemed evident to me we needed to mount a campaign to resolve the crisis of handgun proliferation. But he says, I am now of the opinion that a compelling case for stricter gun control cannot be made. So that was former gun control advocate James Wright, and he's not alone. There are other scholars like him who have converted to the pro-gun position as well. So on your website, you say that there have been all these scholars or researchers who switched their stance on the issue of gun rights. They have all switched away from the gun control position. Is that still the case with them? Yes, it is. In fact, we don't know of a single case where a pro-gun researcher has studied the issue and converted to gun control. All the ones who have switched have turned away from the anti-gun position. And incredibly enough, there are even anti-gun leaders who have crossed over Uh, For example, one of the biggest opponents of concealed carry in Florida was Representative Ron Silver. Now, the state of Florida passed its concealed carry law in 1987, and the opposition claimed that once Florida passed its carry law, they they warned, you know, horror stories. The sunshine state was going to become the gunshine state. People would be shooting each other in the streets and bars, you know, things like that. It was a cute little jingle that they came up with, but it was totally false. In fact, FBI reports showed that the homicide rate in Florida, which in 1987 was much higher than the national average, fell dramatically after the law passed. So at the law's 15-year anniversary, Florida's murder rate had dropped to below the national average, and by the law's 25-year anniversary, the murder rate had dropped a whopping 54%. So 
Representative Silver, again, one of the leading opponents of the law before it passed, graciously admitted several years later that he'd been wrong and that the law had been working well. Uh, Same thing happened in Texas with one of the chief anti-gun lobbyists there. Texas passed a concealed carry law in 1995, and subsequently their murder rate dropped 34 percent during the law's first five years. Well, one of the chief opponents of the Texas law was Senior Corporal Glenn White, who was president of the Dallas Police Association. And White lobbied hard against the law because he says he thought it would lead to wholesale armed conflict. He admits, though, all the horror stories I thought would come to pass didn't happen. In fact, he says, I think it's worked out well. And that says good things about the citizens who have permits. I'm a convert, he says. Eric, what can you tell me about these so-called reluctant converts, though? I mean, these are people who started off as very staunch anti-gun advocates. Um, I mean, they believed in gun control. They wanted additional restrictions. But then, all of a sudden, one day they're assaulted, and their whole worldview comes crashing down. It's completely shattered because now they realize that they can't carry a cop with them 24-7. Yeah, these are the sad cases. Um, These are the ones who were so committed to their belief that the police would protect them, but they had to learn the hard way that that's just not possible. Now, first of all, I would say about the police, 93% of law enforcement surveyed believe that any citizen should be able to purchase a firearm for defense. I mean, that's an astounding percentage from a yearly poll of police chiefs and sheriffs because they know their officers and deputies can't usually get there in time to protect you. So you are truly the first responder, and you need to be ready to protect yourself. So anyway, to answer your question, there are some real sad cases where people were assaulted, and then out of necessity, they became believers in gun ownership. I'm talking about people like James and Meredith, uh, a New Jersey couple who had just finished walking their dog. And uh, they were robbed, she was violently raped, and he was beaten to within an inch of his life. Uh, It's just awful. And and they survived, uh, thankfully, this horrific event, although not without physical and emotional scars. Uh, And then they decided to move out of state. But the reason that they had wanted to live in New Jersey in the first place is because of the strict gun control laws in New Jersey. The husband says he didn't believe in people having guns, and he certainly didn't want one. He says he thought the police would be there to protect him, but he now says that was a mistaken assumption on his part. In fact, he told an ABC reporter that he now realizes you're on your own. So they moved to Ohio, where he says they now feel safer, and they are both proud gun owners. You know, same thing happened down in Florida. A woman named Susan Gonzalez was really as anti-gun as they come, but that changed after she suffered through a violent home invasion in 1995. And her whole view on guns changed after that. And she and her husband got firearms for their home. And it's a good thing they did because sometimes lightning actually does strike twice in the same place. In 2015, their home was broken into by two masked gunmen, and her husband was shot during a struggle with one of the attackers. But Susan grabbed her husband's pistol and shot one of the aggressors. He stumbled into the front yard and died. The other one got away. But Susan says guns saved their lives. It's really an amazing story. She used to be against guns, but now she's a concealed carrier. And she tells others, you need to be prepared and have guns for safety. 
And, and look, she should know. She, she has survived two violent attacks. Lightning certainly does strike twice, but folks, we've got to, you know, wrap up the show. There's so much more we want to talk about, but we've got to wrap things up for now. In our next episode, we'll discuss some of the horrific abuses that have occurred, which can be traced back to having an improper view of natural or constitutional rights. Hey, be sure to subscribe on iTunes and do us all a favor. Leave us a five-star rating and review for us today. And be sure to follow GOA on Facebook and on Twitter, so that way you're in the loop for everything you need to know to keep up to date with things going on. Tune in next week to the newest episode of Firing Back, and don't forget, GOA is the only no-compromise gun lobby in Washington. Stay up to date with the latest news and updates by visiting gunowners.org. 